If you want an estimation of your own life and your church, there's no better place to get it than from the Lord himself. That's what we see in the book of Revelation in these first three chapters. We see a picture of Jesus walking in the midst of the churches. So you imagine this morning Jesus walking in our church, walking around, going from class to class, uh, evaluating the Sunday school teacher's Sunday school lesson, evaluating the, your participation in Sunday school, evaluating my sermon, evaluating your response, evaluating our worship. He knows all about us, and that's what he's saying to each one of these churches. I know. I know what's going on because I'm walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I am in the midst of every church, Jesus said to his disciples, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And honestly, that ought to give us a little reason to tremble that our Lord is taking an evaluation of what takes place here. You know, the Bible says that when Samuel was looking for a king to replace Saul, he went to the home of Jesse and saw all of Jesse's sons. Immediately, Samuel began to use human estimations of who ought to replace Saul, but the Lord reminded Samuel of something very important. The Lord said to Samuel, The Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So that's both comforting and troubling today as we meet together. So I want you to open your Bible as we look at the book of Revelation chapter 3. We're going to consider verses 1 through 6. This is Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis, the dead church that stood in need of revival. I remind you that their applications of all, all these churches to, were to read all the letters. So there may have been somebody in every church who needed to hear something of what was said. Some of you need to hear this today. Some of us need to hear every one of these messages because God is speaking to us. Beginning to read in verse 1 of chapter 3, Jesus said, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know uh, your name, your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, for they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, here Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. I think we spent enough time on this at the very outset, but I want to remind you that that number seven re 
uh, refers to fullness or completeness. Jesus has the fullness of God's Spirit. Uh, we can back that up with Scripture as we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul wrote, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of God dwelled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the Spirit dwelled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. James said in chapter 2 of James, verse 26, For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We might also say that a church without the fullness of the Spirit is dead. No one else is better able to identify life or decay in the life of a church than the one who has the fullness of life himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows all about us. The writer of Hebrews said, There is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the living Lord Jesus is evaluating us. Now, we're going to look at this letter. Number one, we want to consider the reputation of the city called Sardis. What do we know about the city? Remember, as Jesus writes these letters, he refers to things in the town that they would identify with. So we might say if Jesus was writing a letter to the First Baptist Church of Loosedale, he would say, there's no need for you to go down to the scratching post and scratch your back. Rather, what you need to do is come to me and get your back scratched. Let me scratch where it itches. Let me handle the things in your life. Just an illustration, a practical, maybe a silly illustration, but that's exactly what he's doing here. He's referring to things about the town that they knew about, and then he's applying it to their church. The city of Sardis was a city that sat on a 1,500-foot-high hill with sheer cliffs. Almost inaccessible was the city. But the problem on the hill at Sardis was the hill was becoming too small. And in the time of John, the city was in a state of decline. You know what decline looks like in a town? In the business area. You know what revival looks like in a town in the business area. Well, the church was beginning to look like the town. The town was dying. They didn't have any more room to grow. And so people were moving into other areas. Same thing was happening to the church. Not only so, but in Sardis, the shining city surrounded by high cliffs so that it was well protected from invading armies had twice been invaded before John's writing. It seems that a single soldier observing the, the, the face of the cliff, one of those knights saw a crack in the cliff just wide enough so that a group of soldiers could climb up undetected. And so they were able to enter the city by night to the city's surprise because they didn't really need anybody to be watching because they were overconfident. And so Jesus said some things to this church that are going to apply. You're going to be able to to, to see how they fit. Now, remember, Jesus said, I'm the one walking in the midst of your church. I'm the one filled with the uh, fullness of God's Spirit. I know what you have. I know what you don't have. You don't have life in your church. You may be doing many things, but you don't have the fullness of the Spirit. Now, here's a verse that we've never applied to the life of the church before that we might do well to apply. 
It's from John chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus said, It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, all the activity that we can work up, all the programs that we can organize will not accomplish in six months what one movement of the life of God's Spirit in His church can accomplish. So let's consider second, Jesus' call to the church at Sardis. He says in verse 2, Wake up! Wake up! And strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Wake up is not an invitation. It's a warning. It's a warning that you would give to a person asleep in a house that was on fire. It's what you, it, was, it is what you would say to a sleeping city under attack by the enemy. But it's the very thing that Jesus said to this church that, uh, that felt a little secure in its reputation. He says, wake up, and he says it with urgency. Why the hurry? What's the urgency? Well, something happened in Israel last weekend. We all noticed that if you've been watching the news. The nation was attacked. Why were they attacked? Well, they, they admittedly say they were caught off guard. There were those who were supposed to be watching who were not watching. There, was, there, there were those who were supposed to be alert who, who gave them no warning and tragedy followed. Well, listen to what Jesus says here. There are things that are about to die. Things are dying that don't need to die. And there's time to salvage the situation. There's time to turn things around. But in order to do that, you need to wake up. And he said, there are unfinished things in your life. There are things I want to do that are not done. You don't want to die with unfinished work of the Lord in your life, do you? I certainly don't. I want God to have accomplished in me and through me everything that he wanted to accomplish. But he says to this church, there's unfinished work in your life. I, there's some things I want to do you've not allowed me to do. I wonder if that's true in your life. I wonder if that's true in the life of this church. There are things that God yet has to accomplish. Think of that. That's such an exciting thing. That's such a wonderful thing. Jesus said there's time to turn it around. There are things I want to do in your church. There's some things I can do if you'll just let me, if you'll just wake up, if you'll just let the Spirit be alive and well in your church. I will accomplish what you've not been able to accomplish through the effort and striving of your flesh. So it was to this church that Jesus called them to wake up, the church in the city that known for to be asleep when uh, danger came, and that they had unfinished work in their lives. So Jesus says in verse 3, Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. In other words, the Lord has spoken to them before about this matter. Usually, if there's an area of our life where we need to repent, and, and let's just face it, there's more than one area in everybody's life, mine included. But sometimes there's an area of our lives where the Lord has spoken to us again and again. And he said, you remember, I've said this to you before. This is not the first time I, I urged you. This is not the first time I encouraged you. This is not the first time I called you to turn away from this sin or that sin. And I'm saying it again. Repent. It's urgent. Do it now. Uh, and so 
now we need to consider Jesus' warning to the church at Sardis. You notice he says here, it's very interesting. He says, so remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, here's his warning, I will come like a thief and you will know you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Now, this is an interesting verse because of the way it reads. Some people think, well, he's talking about the second coming here, but I don't think he's talking about the second coming. And I will tell you why. You remember when he, we looked at the church last week, the church at Thyatira, the church that had the woman Jezebel in it, and Jesus said, I will come and cast her on a bed of sickness. He gave that warning. Well, he's giving a similar warning here to this church. He said, I will come to you. Now, depending on the translation you have, there's a different preposition used. Some translations use the expression, I will come upon you. That's different than coming to you. I will come upon you. Some translations read, I will come against you. So what Jesus is doing, he's threatening this church. He's threatening to come not in an, at the end of time, but to come in time and judge the church, punish the church. Sometimes the Lord punishes the church by just allowing it to die. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't call you to repent. If he didn't care about you, if he didn't see a future in your life, he says, look, there's some things here that are about to die. We can turn this thing around. Listen to me or else I will come against you. So in some sudden unexpected way, the Lord says he will come with some end time judgment on your life because you failed to remember, you failed to obey, you failed to repent. So I would ask you, is this a personal word of warning that the Lord is giving you today? Finally, we need to look at the, the Lord's word of encouragement to the faithful few in Sardis. He says, I have a few people in Sardis, a few people who've not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. What does it mean to soil your garments? Well, yesterday, um, my wife and I were going to meet our daughter and uh, on the way I had to stop and get some gas. And you know, you put your gas in the gas pump and you pump it and it cuts off when it, when it gets full, or at least most of them do. Now they cut off. Well, I was standing there pumping gas, just looking off, and all of a sudden I heard something splashing. I looked down at my feet, and my britches and my shoe are just soaked in gas. And so I had to spend all day. Good, We were outside most of the day, but it was good that, uh, you know, it wasn't any worse than that. But I soiled my garments. Soiling your garments means getting them dirty. And how does a Christian soil their garments? We soil our garments with sin. And the Lord knows that. And he said, there's a few in, in Sardis who've not soiled their garments. That didn't mean they were sinless people in Sardis, but there were people in Sardis who were dealing with their sins. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But what if we're not confessing our sin? What if we're not being serious about dealing with sin? What if God speaks to us about sin and we go right on sinning and we pay no attention? Are there sins that go back in your history that you've not confessed that the Lord might bring to your memory? I would just 
ask you to consider that? Maybe something that, that, that lies in the past in your life and you never confessed it to the Lord and asked for his forgiveness. Maybe the Lord would bring that to your memory and say, I'm asking you to repent of that now. Would you repent of that? Would you agree with me? Did you know that's what the word confess means? It means to say the same thing. In the Greek, that's what it means. Say the same thing. Eddie, say the same thing about it that I said about it. I said it's sin. Now you agree with me that it's sin. Your garments are sold. You're dirty. So you need to deal with that. And he says the promise he makes to these people is those who have not soiled their garments. He says, they will walk with me in white. Uh, they'll be clothed in white garments. Now in the book of Revelation, there are three reasons a person is walks in white. Number one, it's a testimony to their faith in the Lord Jesus. Number two, it's an indication that they've been faithful in the trials of life. But the third reason is the one that we most commonly understand. It's revealed in the seventh chapter in verse 14. John saw a great number dressed in white robes. He was speaking with an angel and the angel identified who they were. He said, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way to be dressed in white in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of your goodness. Your goodness is not a white robe. We don't have any goodness. But that we've been forgiven, that we've been to Jesus, that we've repented, that we've, we're depending on the blood of Jesus to cleanse us of our sins. So chapter 3, verse 5, the second part, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, let's just be honest. When we read that verse, sometimes it troubles us just a little bit. He's going to erase my name in the book of life? My name's in the book of life, and then he's going to erase my name? First, notice that this is not a threat. It's a promise. It's a promise. It's an assurance that a name written in the book of life will not be removed from the registry of citizenship in heaven. This week I did a little research to see where this is done from time to time. And one of the places it's done is on the voter roll, depending on where you live, what county you live in and what state you live in. Here is a particular rule, and I'm going to quote it, from a particular county in a particular state. In order to maintain an accurate voter database... Our office continually updates the voter registration records to account for the unfortunate situation of a deceased voter. Upon notification and verification of the deceased party, which is an interesting statement, is it not? We cancel the appropriate voter record. So we call and say, hey, Eddie Davidson, we understand that you've died, and so we're just notifying you that your name has been removed from the record. That's exactly what, the way that reads. But what they're saying is, when you die, we take your name off the roll. Well, what Jesus is saying is, your name doesn't ever get taken off the book of life. That's a promise. I'm not going to take your name off the book. Everything's going to be okay. And these people living in Asia Minor, they could lose everything physically. They could lose their property. They might even lose their citizenship if they remain faithful to Jesus. But Jesus is saying, your name is never going to be removed from, from the record in heaven. But the thing you need to be concerned about is, is your name there to start with? You say, well, I'm a member of the church. I've been a member of this church since 
19, whatever, being a member of the church does not mean that your name is on God's book in heaven, on the book of life. Jesus was talking to his disciples on one occasion. You know, he gave them power over evil spirits. And he said, hey, that's a good thing. He said, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So I would ask you to seriously think about this morning, is your name on God's record in heaven? I don't care how long it's been on this church roll or on any church roll. Is it in the Lamb's book of life? And, and what if it's not? Well, the book of Revelation tells us in chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, verse 27, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in chapter 3, Verse 5, I'll read the whole verse now. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Will Jesus confess you? Will he own you as his own on that day? This is the warning he gave in, in the Gospel of Mark. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And in the book of Revelation says about this person, the faithful few who've not soiled their garments, whose garments are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. They will walk with me in white. Their name will not be removed from the book of life. And I will confess their name before my Father and his angels. Jesus owns only those who own him, only those who follow him, only those who who are faithful to him. And Jesus said, in Sardis, I have a faithful few. Are you part of Jesus' faithful few? Let's pray.